This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. Coming up on Today with Jeff Vines, we're looking back at a series called The Story as Pastor Jeff journeys through major events and key figures of the Bible. In this episode, we're looking at stories from the New Testament. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. You make me Today. Today. Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining me on Today with Jeff Vines. My name is Aaron, and we've been journeying through the Bible's major events in our series titled The Story, and it's time to hear about Joseph of Arimathea, the man who laid Jesus' body to rest in his tomb. Pastor Jeff is in Luke chapter 23, and Luke was not a disciple of Jesus, but rather a historian. So let's take a look at this more historical account of events. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Turn over to Luke chapter 23, verse 50. Luke 23, 50, as we continue our journey through the story, and we come to what is the favorite narrative of many, many Christians. Many, many Christ followers love this narrative. It's a great time in our uh, deliverance of the story, and as we go from uh, strength to strength in this entire series, that we come to a time that makes so much difference in everybody's lives. Because if today's narrative is true, everything changes. Everything That means that everything Jesus said about your life, everything he said about your death, everything he said about the way you should live, every command that he gave you, everything Jesus said about your life and about your death and about your future and about your present, all of it's true if this narrative is true. Now, let's start like this before we get into the text. Uh, I recall a story that I've told you before, and you know, I I do retell stories quite often because I have no new material. And so I just keep, (laughs) you know, regurgitating the same stories. But some stories, no, seriously, some stories I really, really like. And it's where the CNN photographer, uh, I don't know if it was Brackett Field, it was a small airfield around here somewhere, and it was a couple of years ago when the LA fires were burning, uh, uh, and there was a, we were losing a lot of forestation, and a CNN uh, photographer called one of the local airfields and said, look, I need, to, I need to hire a private plane, a small plane, to go up over and, and shoot some shots of the fire so the rest of the world knows what's happening here in Southern California. True story now, he calls... Uh, the airfield, they said, right, sure, no problem. There will be a small engine aircraft waiting on the tarmac for you. Park your car at the airport. It'll be waiting right there as soon as you get out of your car. He parks his car. He walks over. He sees the airplane. He steps in. The first thing he notices is the pilot's a bit young, but he says, okay, I want you to take this plane, swing it around into the wind, take me up over the fires, and I'll tell you what to do after that. So the pilot says, okay. So he turns the plane into the wind, takes off, gets up high in the air, and then the CNN photographer says, look, I need you to take me down as close to the fire as you can get me, right down close and the pilot says, why? He says, I'm a CNN photographer and I want to get some close-ups of the fire to show the world what's going on here in Southern California. And the young man, the pilot, he paused and he said, so what you're saying is you're not my flight instructor? 
And he said, uh, yeah, that, you read the rest of the story online. It's quite an interesting story. And uh, yes, the young man says, I know how to take off, but I've not yet learned how to land. And the rest is history. Now, the reason I start that way is because you and I know we get in a lot of trouble when we start assuming things. And, and out of my travels, as I've gone wherever it is, this is a, a, a statement that is made, and I'm so surprised when people make it, especially it's been made by very well-educated people. And they'll say to me this, they'll say, hey, Jeff, don't give me that stuff. Everybody knows that believing in Jesus and the crucifixion and resurrection is only for the weak intellectual. See, the person who is weak and needs a crutch to make it through life. Educated people, they say, don't believe in such things. Now, when I hear that, I think, man, how can somebody who's graduated from a Harvard or a Princeton or a Yale make a comment that's so ignorant? You know how ignorant that is, right? You know there are biochemists and nuclear physicists and uh, there are uh, paleontologists, there are archaeologists, there are the educated elite. Go online, Google sometimes. Here's Google sometimes the 100 uh, smartest professors or the 100 most distinguished professors in America, okay? And go down and see how many of them are Christians. It's amazing. If you think that only people who aren't smart believe in Christ and the resurrection and the historical narrative, you're just, it's out of ignorance. You just don't know any better. I mean, some of the sharpest, wisest people in their fields today embrace Christ. Not only the crucifixion, but the narrative of the resurrection and have become Christ followers. Now, have all of them? No, of course not. I'm simply saying you can't look at what Jesus teaches and what we read about Jesus' life his death, his burial, and resurrection, and say that only people who are weak, intellectually speaking, believe. That's ridiculous. You got men in that list that you'll find if you Google it, like Peter Bergen and Ben Carson, Simon Morris, and John Polkinghorne, who held the Lacasian chair at Cambridge University, who's the most respected professor on the planet when it comes to quantum theory and quantum physics. <laughs> you've got people like Alastair McGrath. I mean, you've got some people who are at the top echelon of education who've embraced Christianity, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus as a historical fact, and have been changed internally, transformed because of it. So I just want to get that out of the way and let you know that the narrative I'm taking you through is a narrative that has changed many, many lives. And what I want to do is two things. I want to take you through the narrative quickly, and I'm just going to give you the facts, ma'am. But I want to stop along the way and help you understand why is it that so many, not only what we would call average people like you and me, but why so many well-educated people in the sciences and philosophy in uh, whatever it is, have embraced the resurrection narrative and have become Christ followers and have been transformed from the inside out. So I'm on verse 50 of chapter 23, and here's what happens. This is Luke's historical account. Now, you know who Luke is, right? Luke is not Matthew, Mark, or John. It doesn't take rocket science to figure that out. But Matthew, Mark, and John were what? Disciples. Luke is not a disciple. Luke is a historian. Do you understand that? He's a first-rate historian, which is why people like John McRae from National Geographic said that when it comes to the Bible, no archaeological find or discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. You have to understand that when people look at Luke, they look at him as a historian like they would Tacitus or any other Roman historian or Jewish historian like Josephus because he's so accurate in his names, dates, and places. So Luke is not a disciple. He's recording these events as a historian. And he's incredibly respected. In fact, if I had the time, I could take you through three occasions that... The archaeological, uh, archaeologists and scientists believed, or historians have believed that Luke was mistaken in something that he had said. And then after we've done the research, we figured out Luke was the right one. We were the ones that were wrong. So understand that Luke is a respected historian and he's recording these events. And here's what he says in verse 50 of chapter 23. He says 
that there's a man named Joseph. Now, here's where we left Jesus last week. Jesus has died. The Romans have pierced his side out, blood and water, and they confirm the death. The Bible says that an earthquake comes over the land. It's interesting. There's another historian by the name of Thalem, T-H-A-L-L-U-M, that is going to record that incident and claim that it was an eclipse. But darkness, however it happened, came over the earth. There was an earthquake. The curtain in the temple was torn in two. The soldiers take the body down off the cross. And the next part of the narrative is that there's a man called Joseph from Arimathea that shows up and wants to take the body of Jesus and bury it. Now, here's why this is important. Joseph becomes an important figure, historically speaking, because the Bible tells us, if you're looking, that he was an upright man. I'm in verse 50. He was an upright man, and he had not consented to the decision and action. So he was a religious man, upright man, who was part of the council that crucified Jesus, but he said, hey, don't do that. But they didn't. The reason he said, don't do that, is because the Bible tells us in the next verse that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. In other words, Joseph of Arimathea is a man who was well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures. He started to look at the life of Jesus and he said, wait a minute, whoa, this dude is fulfilling the prophecies that have been prophesied for the Messiah. All right, let me take another break. You still with me? Listen, when we date literary works of antiquity, old books and accounts, it is not an art, it is a science. It's very specific. So we can tell when we gather something from antiquity, uh, if it's written on parchment, if it's uh, written by a certain uh, ink, if it's written on a certain uh, background, we can tell by the document itself, we're able to date right right within five to 10 years, uh, how old, whatever it is we're reading, uh, how long ago it was written. For instance, in the British Library today is is a manuscript called the John Rylands Manuscript. It's a fragment. And we've been able to date it around 103, and it's the book of John which is amazing because that means these letters were being circulated about the same generation that they were written. So when we date a document, we know it's a science. It's not some made-up legend. We know that when we're reading Isaiah, for instance, in the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls find, we found, we found a thousand-year-old copy of the book of Isaiah, and we contrasted and compared it to what you have in your Bible today, and it was 99.9% pure, which is why Simon Greenleaf from Harvard University says, if you can't trust the Bible as a historical document, you can't trust any document. Because no literary work of antiquity has as much manuscript authority as the Bible. We have thousands and thousands of copies to contrast and compare to know if they agree with each other. Do you understand that? So when you're looking at the book of Luke, you're looking at history that is respected. Joseph of Arimathea, he shows up on the scene and he looks at Jesus. He looks at the life of Jesus and because he's so familiar with the Old Testament, There are 48 specific prophecies about the Messiah, 48 specific prophecies that we know were written hundreds of years before Jesus ever shows up. How do we know? Because we've been able to date the documents. You with me? So there are 48 specific prophecies. Joseph looks at these prophecies. He looks at the life of Jesus and thinks, man, this dude is fulfilling these prophecies. Let me give you a few, for instance, specific prophecies, not general prophecies. It's said In the book of Isaiah and in the Old Testament, that the Sanhedrin would offer 30 pieces of silver to a close friend of the Messiah to betray him. It's said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, in a specific family, in a specific time and place. It says the soldiers would crucify Jesus, and crucifixion wasn't even invented yet. It said when they do crucify him, they would gamble for his clothing, and there would be false accusers at an invalid trial, that his legs would remain unbroken. And that's unheard of in crucifixion, that it would be born in this time and this place, and that the Sanhedrin would use the money for betrayal to buy a potter's field. 
And that's just eight. 48 specific prophecies written hundreds of years before Jesus ever shows up. Joseph of Arimathea looks at this and says, wow, this dude, so he knows his Old Testament. Something's going on here. Now, would you like to hear the rebuttal against this? And this is why really sharp people who study literary works of antiquity, they think when they hear something like this, they think if that's the best you got, maybe this Jesus is real because the rebuttal is this. Well, Jesus positioned himself and intentionally fulfilled all these prophecies. That's the best you got? Can you explain to me how Jesus can determine where he's going to be born into what family and what city? Oh, you're, he's got, then he, well, he could if he was God. Well, that's our point. <laughs> Joseph of Arimathea. When Jesus dies, he says this was the Messiah, but he can't, he can't harmonize it with the fact that the Messiah is, is dead. Because in his mind, Messiahs don't die. They reign forever. So he goes and he asks Pilate for the body. Now, one more thing. Just stay with me for a second. The other thing is, when historians read this account in Luke 22, they think, wait a minute, this is not written like legend. You know, when you write legend, you make yourself look really good, right? The disciples make themselves look really silly. They're not expecting a resurrection. Do you know where they are right now? I mean, not right right now. (laughs) But after Jesus is crucified and Joseph of Arimathea go ask for the body, where are the disciples? They're hiding. They're terrified. They're thinking, well, if the Romans killed our leader, we're surely next. So they're hiding out for fear. Now, if you're writing legend or myth and you're in the story, you make yourself look really good. Now, if it was really myth or legend, historians say the, the resurrection story would not appear like this if it was simply myth or legend. Because the disciples look faithless. They look stubborn. They look ignorant, stupid even, slow, hard-headed. And if this was legend, the story would be different that you would read. It would, it would say the disciples set their watch three days and they sold some popcorn and tickets and they had everybody come around the tomb and they're expecting a resurrection. Watch this. This is going to be really good. You think Lazarus was something? Watch this. And then they'll start counting down 10, nine, eight, and the earth shakes seven, six, five, and the stone starts to roll away four, three, two, and the Roman soldiers run away. One out pops Jesus. And there's a guy with a sign, John three sixteen, And somebody says, you're the man. <laughs> you got it. That's legend. That's myth. But this reads like history, which means that this is real life. And the disciples are hiding and there's no church and there's no Christianity. They all just went home. And I'm in verse 52 now. Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and he says, can I have the body? He must be some kind of a liaison between the Jews and the Romans because Pilate says yes. And the Bible says he took it down. And this would be Joseph with his servants. He's a wealthy man. They wrap it in linen cloth, which is the way wealthy people bury people of prominence. They place it in the tomb. They cut it in a rock. One in which no one had yet been laid. So it's a brand new tomb. Now I want you to understand how this works. It's the only way we're going to get this. When you bury somebody in Jesus' day, you have a concrete slab. And on the concrete slab, you put the body. And then over the body, you put a secondary cloth. Now, the first thing that happens though, remember Jesus would have faced a scourging and a crucifixion. So his body is going to be uh, very mess. It's going to be blood, guts, and gore, quite frankly. Uh, the veins and sinews are going to be exposed and there's going to be deep gaping holes, wounds. So the first thing you're going to do, and if you watch CSI, they didn't have the pole or the, the, the water thing that comes down and washes the body. Okay. They're going to have a rag, something similar to this. And it's going to take hours to clean the body from all the blood, the guts and the gore. It's a horrible job. And in this, in the first century culture, guess who got the job? The women. 
There's a surprise, right? <laughs> Things haven't changed for 2,000 years, have they? And so the women usually go and they'll wash the body. After they've washed the body, they will put oils on the body and they will just kind of decorate the body with the oils and it's supposed to, to quieten or soften the stench. And then they will put the secondary uh, cloak on and they will, this would have been uh, uh, soaking in oils and perfumes before they laid it over the body of Jesus. And then after they do that, if you're wealthy, you get these white strips of linen. And it's more of a prestigious thing. It's more to respect the body and to say this man or this woman did something that really impacted history. And so you laid the strips of white linen over the body, just like that. And sometimes you would wrap them and tie them. Now, here's the problem with Jesus' death on the cross. It was incredibly inconvenient because it's Sabbath day. And so the guys have got to do all this before the sun goes down because there's no exception. Once the sun goes down, Sabbath begins, there's no work. They're not able to do it. So Joseph and the bunch of guys do what most guys would do. They just throw the body on the tomb, tie it with some duct tape and get out of town. (laughs) I'm sorry. And they think we're going to come back later. In fact, the Bible says it was preparation day. I'm in verse 54. It's preparation day, which means you have to do whatever you need to get done before the sun goes down. So the guys just do a sloppy job somehow. We don't know exactly what they did, but I'm sure they had duct tape then too. And they just go out of the tomb and they go back to the festivities and they're going to wait now till the Sabbath is over to come back and finish the job. Now the Bible says, it's very interesting, and I'm in verse 55, that the women traveled with Joseph of Arimathea and they saw the tomb and they saw, look in the text, how his body was laid and they're not happy about it. So I don't know what they said exactly, something like probably, girlfriends, this ain't right. (laughs) And they decide that there's not enough time to do it properly. And they're probably thinking to themselves, you know, Jesus wasn't who we thought he was. He was the Messiah, but he's dead, so he probably wasn't. But he was still a good guy. He deserves a decent burial, but there's nothing they can do because the sun's about to go down. And the Bible tells us that they're going to go home and prepare spices, honor the Sabbath, and then come back to the tomb. Now, let me show you how the tomb thing worked. The concrete slab was inside the tomb. The tomb was not below ground. It was on top of ground. It was a cave. And there'd be this big stone like this. And they would take it onto a trough and they would roll it up and wedge it in place. And after everything had been done inside, they would remove the wedge and roll it back down over the entrance and then they'd seal the entrance. Now, in this case, we're told in the Bible, in the historical account, that the Romans placed guards there. Well, of course they would. I mean, we, we don't need the Bible to tell us that. We know that Roman guards were placed at every crucifixion. And they guarded the tomb so that nobody could claim anything or nobody could steal the body or it was the property of Rome. And so you have to understand that if the Romans were guarding the tomb and they were, the text tells us they were, we know they were by corroborating resources, that if the body goes missing, the Roman guards pay for it with their lives. It's how it works. If you lose a life, you lose your life. And so they would have a vested interest in guarding the tomb of Jesus. Historians know this. Now, the women... See how the body is laid. And I'm in verse 56 now. They went home and prepared spices and perfumes. They rested on the Sabbath, though, in obedience to the command. So these women are sad. You know, you know Jesus wasn't who he thought he was. Now, now, let me just say something here quickly. I'm surprised because women are usually more intuitive than men, right? We know that. But even the women weren't expecting a resurrection. There's nowhere in the text that says that they waited because they knew Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They, nowhere. The men we got, the women... They should have gotten it. A little bit more intuitive. They don't. So they go home and they're sad, but they know they can't do anything. So they got to sit there all through the Sabbath knowing that Jesus has not given a, been given a proper burial, which is very important in first century culture and even still today. And then the Bible says, 
When the Sabbath is over, and actually I'm in Luke 24 now, verse 1, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, very early in the morning, the Greek is as soon as they saw the sun. As long as it's dark, the Sabbath is still in operation. As soon as first light comes, though, the Sabbath is over, you can work. They prepare their spices, they go back to the tomb. Now, on their way to the tomb, what do you think they were expecting to see? Body. I mean, think about it. In their culture, when somebody died, they stayed dead. Wait a minute. In every culture, if somebody dies, they stayed dead. So they go back expecting to see a dead body. And the Bible says that they took their spices, they prepared, and they went to the tomb. The reason they're going to the tomb is to find the dead body and to finish a proper burial. But then verse 2 says that they found the stone rolled away. Now, the way it's written in the original language is not simply that the stone was, uh, the seal was broken and it was rolled back up and wedged into place. The, the original language, if I could just have a little liberty here to, to illustrate it as best I can. The original language says more like this. The stone was picked up and thrown like a Frisbee into the forest, okay? It's like that. Now, obviously, Frisbee is not in the Greek language, but you know what I'm saying. It's not saying it was just rolled back up. It was rolled away. It was thrown away as if somebody picked it up, somebody with incredible human strength, and threw it away. And maybe it's because the writers trying to tell us that there's something supernatural that is happening. They didn't have cranes in the first century, so something happens to the stone and then it says the women entered and they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. And I love this next line, verse four, while they were wondering about this. So they've come, they're going to give Jesus a proper burial. They see the stone thrown out. The seal has been broken. They can't figure it out. And they just stand there wondering, mesmerized. Not once did one of them say, he has risen. We knew this was going to happen. Woo. If it's legend, they knew it, but this is not legend. This is history. They had no idea. And then the Bible says they're looking around and just as they're loaded down with the spices, wondering what happened, these two men in clothes show up. Look in the text. They gleamed like lightning and stood before them. It says the women bowed down, their faces to the ground, and I love it. The men, the angel said to the women, why do you look for the living among the dead? I love that line. You know why I like it? Because if I would have been the women... I would have said, well, we're not looking for the living among the dead. We're looking for the dead among the dead. The guy we're looking for is dead. D-E-A-D, dead. And you don't come back from that. Or do you think we're just carrying these spices for nothing? He's dead. And finally, the angel says, look, let me tell it to you plainly. He's not here. He's risen. J-E-S-U-S has R-I-S-E-N. You got it? And I want to look, you know, did the, the angel say something like, hey, if it appears like somebody picked up the stone and threw it away like a Frisbee, it's because somebody picked up the stone and threw it away like a Frisbee. And if it appears there's no one in the tomb, that's because there's nobody in the tomb. He has risen. Now, let me just pause one more time here. Uh, I'm glad some of you find this humor. I find it incredibly humor. Some of you are just like, <laughs> why didn't the women get it? I mean, it's not like Jesus didn't say it. Have you read the gospels? Says it over and over again. I'll be crucified but I'll raise again on the third day. I'll rise again on the third day. I'll be crucified in the hands of sinful men, but don't worry. I'll, be, I'll rise again on the third day. Oh, by the way, tear down this temple in three days and destroy it, and I will rebuild it in three days. Well, why didn't they get it? Here's why. It's the same dynamic that takes place in my house every week. It, again, it's called selective hearing. It's when you say something as the father and the leader of the home, and nobody really wants to hear it, so they just kind of ignore you. What, what's happening? It's the dynamic where when you say something to your family that they don't want to hear, la, 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 I'm not listening. And every time Jesus talked about that he was going to die, they believed Jesus to be the Messiah and the disciples were like, la, 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 I'm not listening. I don't want to hear this. And they just ignored it. 
They thought, surely we misunderstand. I mean, he does speak in parables. Jesus tries on numerous occasions to convince them, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be delivered in the hands of sinful men, but don't worry, I'm going to rise again on the third day. He even tells them at the Passover feast, in which Peter responds by saying this, never, and he rebuked Jesus. Peter rebuked Jesus. He said, don't say it again. I don't want to hear you talk like that. Not on my watch, that's not going to happen. Not on my watch, and Jesus says what? Get thee behind me, Satan. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. What Jesus taught is true. What he said about your life, what he said about your death, what he said about your pain, what he said about your suffering, what he said about your future, what he said about the way you should live, what he said about peace and anxiety and fear. It's all true, but there are two things. I want you at least to admit before you walk out of this place, no matter what side of the fence you're on. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.